Well, I'm glad you made it to second service. Um, for those of you that didn't set your clocks forward, we're glad you're here. You know, First Peter has been such an amazing book, um, and this morning, the text this morning is no exception, and well, we, could, we could talk for hours about this text this morning, and fortunately, lunch is waiting for us, so that can mean two things, either that I want to get done quick because I can smell lunch from up here, or we can go extra long because you don't have to worry about lunch, thanks to these young men and women that are sitting up front. They got up really early this morning. We're in here by, what, 7 or 7.30, making you all lunch. So I hope you go enjoy it after the service. You know, this morning as I was praying and meditating on the message this morning and just on the book of 1 Peter in general, yeah, I was reminded again of, of, of how much Peter talks about the suffering church and how the suffering church is to respond to persecution. And for, for us, that, that this idea of suffering, of, of actual suffering, of, of being beaten and, and the potential of losing our lives really doesn't sink in because we've never been persecuted, really. And so I was doing a little bit of research, and, and each year in, in the world, 100,000 believers lose their lives. People who, who lose their lives because they are followers of Christ. That's the only reason that that they lose their lives because they have chosen to follow Christ. So every year, 100,000 people, that's 11 people per hour. So in the time that we are here, 11 people will have lost their lives. Every week, there are church buildings that are destroyed simply because buildings that are destroyed, buildings that are burned down, simply because it's a place where people gather to worship Jesus Christ. And it's estimated that, that about a half a million people every year suffer some type of persecution because they are followers of Christ. And so for, for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, persecution is a very real thing. And when Peter writes this letter, when they read this letter that Peter wrote, they can identify very well with what Peter is writing. And I was, I was humbled and realized I thought about the freedoms that we have and the reality that, that you know, we never, we don't suffer really persecution for what we believe. And I'd encourage you as, as followers of Christ who have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who are being persecuted to, uh, to pray. You know, go to, to Voice of the Martyrs, which is a great website, or, or Open Doors, two websites that, that are, are dedicated to the persecution of Christians. And they give you real ways to to care for our brothers and sisters that are persecuted around the world. It's a very real thing that happens in most of the world, and we are very blessed. 
And so with that in mind, and as you read 1 Peter, remember, remember that there are, there are dads and moms, boys and girls who are dying because they love Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because he who suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of deception and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has, he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, he should speak as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, it should be with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Father, may these words become real and alive to us. Show us, Lord, from these words as we um, break them apart, how they apply to us here today in this community. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So Peter begins verse 1 of chapter, word with, of chapter 4 with the word therefore. Remember last week we talked about therefore because Christ suffered, died, was resurrected because Christ overcame death, was victorious. Therefore, live your lives this way. Christ has suffered in the flesh so he says, arm yourselves with the same purpose. You've seen Christ suffer, and his suffering was triumphant. And since Christ died and was triumphant, arm yourself with, with this same idea. Peter says, you must be willing to die. You must be willing to give your life. For this Christ that you follow. Now for them, there was an alternative. You see, they could deny Christ because the reason they're persecuted and the reason that, that many people around the world are persecuted is because they don't deny Christ. They're given opportunities to recant their faith and therefore not suffer. So they could have denied Christ, but... 
As you'll see, that wasn't an option for these believers who had already suffered persecution. So because Christ died, because he was willing to die, then we too, Peter says, we need to deny ourselves. We need to have the same thought that Christ had. We need to accept the potential that as a follower of Christ, we could ultimately lose our lives. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, when people were beginning to follow him, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So what does it mean to take up the cross? It means we have to be willing to die. Christ is our model. And Peter says, arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. Willingness to die for the glory of God. We must, as Peter says in verse 2 then, be willing to live for God, deny self and, and live for God. Back in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, Peter said that, that if we have suffered for what is right, then we too have, have a stake in this suffering. So these believers had a stake in this suffering. They had left their old sinful ways. They had suffered persecution. And he says in verse 2, he says, Peter says, the person who suffered doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. He's saying, look, live with eternity in mind. We don't live on this earth. We haven't been created to accumulate stuff, to, to follow our own desires, we have been created for a purpose. And instead of living for those desires and lusts, live with eternity in mind. Live the rest of your earthly lives for the will of God. That's, God's, that's his desire for us. That's his plan for us. That we learn that, that, that our lives and our lifestyles are to be patterned after his will and not our own desires. We were created to glorify God. We were created to live for him and for his purposes. And people look at you maybe and they say, well, that's, that's a boring, old-fashioned life. But I'm telling you, following God's will, living for God, is, is the most exciting, adventurous life that any person can live. It's the only way that we are truly, truly fulfilled. Because when we are trying to, to um, have our own wills accomplished, when we live for self 
and our own gratitudes, we will never be able to satisfy our own earthly, fleshly gratitudes. We will always want more. I accumulate this amount, I want more. I have this experience, I want more. I have this status, I want more. It's always wanting more, more, more. When we are within the will of God, we are satisfied with Him and what He does with us. And so so we must deny self and live for God. Peter tells his his church, and, and he says, look, he says, you must be fed up with sin. In verse, in verse 3, he says, you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. He says, enough with this. Enough with the debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and this detestable idolatry. He says, look at the past. You're done with that. You're done with the debauchery, which is unbridled, unrestrained, immorality. Nothing's too bad. We're unchecked and unrestrained. He says, haven't you had enough of that? Haven't you had enough of the drunkenness that, that you were involved in, which, is, which speaks of intoxication, habitual drunkenness? He says, haven't you had enough of that? Haven't you had enough of this detestable idolatry? He's really talking a lot here about idol worship. And all of these things that we see here were a part of their idol worship. Now, for us today, we may not go to a temple and worship a figure, worship an idol, but there are many, many things that we worship, things that we allow to distract us from our relationship with God that become more important to us, that become most important to us, and when it's most important, it becomes an idol. And Peter says, stop that. You used to do that. Don't do it anymore. Remember what you were like. Remember what your sin did to you. Remember the pain of that, 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 that sensuality and lust and that drunkenness. Remember how that made you feel. Peter says, don't go back to and then he adds something really interesting. Verse 4, he says, they think it's strange that you don't plunge into this same flood of deception and they heap abuse on you. Peter's saying, look, when you leave that old lifestyle, when you get out of that, that um, loose living, the people around you are going to be surprised by the way that your life changes. They're going to be surprised that you don't do the things that you used to do. They don't understand the radical change that happens when, when we trust Christ. He says, they're going to think it's strange. But something we, we have to remember as, as Christians, we must have a patient attitude towards those who are lost. See, when your friends see you transformed and you're not living the way you used to, it causes them to wonder what's going on. It 
causes discomfort in them. And you know, as I thought about that, I've lived on both sides of this um, equation. I've lived on both sides. I've seen, while I was still living a sinful life, I've seen friends come to Christ and change their lives and not do the things and engage in the things that they used to with me. And I thought, what's wrong with them? I would pressure them. I would question them. I would think, well, you're just, you're just being a, a goody two-shoe. Or you're, you're being a you know, Bible thumper, we used to say. And, and I, would, I would criticize them because it made me uncomfortable that they were living the way that I knew I should be living. Maybe you're there. And I've also lived on the other side where once I became a committed follower of Christ and once I put away some of those things from my past, it made my friends uncomfortable. And young people, I'm here to tell you, if you're in school, when you choose to follow Christ, when your lifestyle, when your life looks different, than those around you, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to attack you. But when they make fun and they attack us, when they question why we're acting the way we're acting and why we're doing the things that we're doing, Peter gives us the answer to the question back in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but look, in your hearts, Set Christ apart as Lord. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the, re the reason for the hope that you have. See, they're going to they're gonna ask you why you're doing what you're doing, why you're living differently, why, why your complexion has changed, why there's hope in you. And Peter says, when they ask you about that hope, he says, be prepared to give them an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't beat them up. Share with them in a loving way what Christ has done. And I think sometimes we get critical of a non-believing world and, and we have a critical spirit towards them. And so we try to... to, to Pressure them into faith. Peter says, give an answer with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So, so Peter says, look, when they come at you, when they ask you questions, give them a respectful, loving answer. And in doing so, when you give them a respectful, loving answer, your conscience will remain clear. And when they speak maliciously against you, eventually, Peter says, they're going to be ashamed of the way they talked about you. 
And so it's important that we show much love and grace and patience towards those, towards our friends who don't yet believe. We're done with sin. And now we need to show them what that life looks like. And when they ask questions, we need to explain to them why we're acting the way we're acting. And verse 5, Peter says, look, they're going to have to give account for their decision. Love them. Love them. Be patient with them. And Peter goes on, he says, look, you've, you've put on this attitude of Christ, which is to deny self, to live for God's will, to hate sin, but to be patient with those who don't yet believe. And now he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You see, he doesn't just tell us what we're saved from, from this old lifestyle, but he, he tells us now what we're saved to. This is what you need to be about. He says, this is why it's important for you. There's an urgency here because the end is near. Christ is coming. And because he's coming back, be clear-minded and self-controlled. So how do I prepare myself? Christ's coming. Are we just supposed to hunker down and wait it out? Are we to try to, to figure out when and where and how he's coming? He says, watch and pray. Be clear-minded. The idea of this clear-minded, it says, you know, it's, it's keep a steady mind. Keep a cool attitude. It's a warning against crazy thinking, I believe. And, and when it comes to, to eschatology and prophecy and, and end time stuff, there's some really crazy things that happen and that are taught which leads to, to an unbalanced approach often to life and ministry. There's lots of misinterpretation about prophecy. I remember back in 1988, some of us were alive back then, and there was this book in 1988. I don't know if anybody, any of you remember that book. It was called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Returning in 88. And the church got sucked into that. A lot of people that I know got sucked into that. And, and they, were, they were selling. I'm not sure why they were selling stuff. Because if Christ was coming back, they didn't need the money anyway. But they were selling stuff and getting rid of things. And, and they were doing all these things to prepare for Christ. They weren't clear-minded. And it caused lots of confusion. Warren Wiersbe, who was a, a great preacher um, years ago, I used to, be, used to hear him preach out of Moody, Moody Pastors Conference. He said that when he was young in his ministry, one of his first sermons that he ever preached, he preached on end times prophecy. They said after the sermon, a friend came up and 
and ask him, he said, Warren, are you on the planning committee for Christ's return? And then he said, then the gentleman quietly said, you know, I've moved from being on the planning committee to being on the welcoming committee. What he was saying is, we get so consumed with planning how Christ will return. We forget the main responsibility to be ready and to be ready to welcome his return. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying prophecy. We're, we're, we're commanded to. But, but what is the best use of the rest of our time here on earth? Is it to constantly be studying prophecy and trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back and how he's coming back and, and where he's coming back? Or is it to help prepare other people for his coming? To be a part of the welcoming committee. We need to live in light of his return. We need to have an expectant attitude toward his return. But that means we have to have a balanced mind so that we can be awake and alert to pray. He says, be clear-minded so you can pray. You see, it's not... The test of my faithfulness or my spirituality isn't dependent on my ability to draw charts and, and to discern signs and, and to know and tell people when Christ is coming back. My responsibility is, is to be clear-minded and to pray, to be in the Word, to be studying, but then, then to pray and to do. We must pray. We have a responsibility to pray for the lost. What, did you this week pray for a lost friend? For, some, for, for who, someone who is not yet a follower of Christ? Are you praying for, for them to understand and to receive Christ? What about praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ? all over the world who are facing persecution. Be clear-minded and pray. We must pray. The end is coming. I believe the end is near. I believe lots of the signs around us and the things we see and that Scripture tells us points towards His coming. It could be quickly. It could be in our lifetime. It could be today. But be sober-minded and pray. We must not get caught up in all this other stuff. Be clear-minded and pray. And then he says, above all, verse 8, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this word deeply, it could also be translated, and maybe your, your translation has fervently, but it gives the idea of outstretched love. It's the idea of an athlete straining his muscles or a horse running at full gallop, 
An outfielder stretching to get the ball. It is a stretched out kind of love. A love that goes on and on and on. It's a love that costs you something. But love that costs us something, this, this stretched out love, sometimes is more costly than we want it to be. Because this, this love that, that Peter is talking about here, that, he's, that he's, he's encouraging the church to, to, to the way to love each other, this love means we tear down walls, we let down our guard. We put our place in, we, we, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable in that love. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, Four Loves, says this about this subject. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all of the entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket of your own selfishness. There it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Lewis says, look, you can't Put your heart in a casket. Your heart is going to feel, um, it's going to be hurt sometimes. And when it is, we put this wall up and we say, nobody's ever going to hurt me again. You know, about seven years ago, when Verda and I went out to John McGeer in Colorado Springs, I didn't understand how to, to, to let my heart out. I didn't understand how to be vulnerable. And I would bet some of you are there too because of something that happened in your past, because you were hurt by someone or some event, you chose to put your heart in a casket. You chose to say, I will never, ever be hurt again. But what I, what I learned when I was out there is not only when, when we do that, it protects us. But what, happens, what happened for me was, was because my heart was locked up, I couldn't give Verda the love that she needed. But I also couldn't receive the love that she was trying to give to me because I was protecting my heart. I was saying nobody's ever going to get to it. We need to get our hearts healthy. We need to, to work through these processes of forgiveness and healing so that we can open our hearts up and love and have this stretched out love because I'm telling you, there is nothing more beautiful in a marriage than when you can have this stretched out love, where you open your hearts up to each other. And Peter's saying, look, that's the way it needs to be in the church. We need to have this love, 
this deep love for each other. And I think he's saying, look, church, if you're going to make it through this persecution, you have to have this love. And he says this love, this stretched out love, we need this love because he says it covers a multitude of sin. Now, what does he mean by that? It covers a multitude of sin. Let me try to explain this. Every time someone wrongs me, sins against me, hurts me, I have two choices. I can go to my brother. I can deal with it. I can forgive it. Then I can cover it up and move on. Or I can drag that person through the mud and in the hatred stir up all kinds of dissension and dirty them as much as I possibly can. And what this is saying is this type of love doesn't do that. This type of love refuses to wash its dirty laundry in public. This type of love handles our confrontation in private. It goes out of its way to veil sin and to treat it discreetly. Now, let me explain that. It doesn't mean that, that we overlook sin. We must address sin, but mostly in private settings. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore them gently. We must address sin. But I believe 90 plus percent of the time it should be done in private with you and one other person or you or two other people. On very few occasions should we ever address sin publicly. It is a last resort. It is when someone is unconfessed in their sin. But he's saying love has a short memory and it seals its lips. And the church desperately needs that. This fervent love expects to be hurt expects to at times be used unfairly. But it goes on loving. It goes on loving. And no church can survive, no marriage can survive unless the members or the spouse in the relationship decide to love. That love will cover a multitude of sin. Without outstretched love, we will be, never be able to live together in peace. So this is a love that we address it, but we don't publicize it. And then he says, in closing, each one, should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. See, God has given each one of you, 
as a follower of Christ, he gives us spiritual gifts. He has, he has given us our personality. He's given us our passions. He's wired us the way he has and given us spiritual gifts. And we're going to be doing a series here in a few weeks on spiritual gifts. But he's given those to us for his glory. And each one of you has one. And each one of you is expected to use them for the good of this body. You see, spiritual gifts aren't given to us to glorify ourselves or to puff us up or to make us feel good. My spiritual gifts are given, your spiritual gifts are given to enhance this body, to make this body more healthy. And, and Peter says, brothers and sisters, you need to be using those gifts and abilities in your body. You need to be using them and there's many different forms. He says in various forms, we've all been given different ones to use. Not one is better than the other. Not one is more necessary than the other. God has given them in a variety of ways to a variety of people. And he tells us why in verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, he should speak he should, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, it should be with the strength that God provides. So this gift that you have, he will strengthen you. He will give you the ability to exercise it. So that in all things, God may be praised through Christ. We do these things so that God can be glorified. We do these things to make him famous. He says, to him be glory and power forever and ever. So as Peter writes to this persecuted church as we, as we close it down, we must remember that when we have the attitude of Christ, when we think like he does, and we're commanded to think and act like he does, to take on his attitude, we will deny self. In other words, we won't be most important in our life. We, we love God, we make him most important, we elevate him above ourselves, and we live for him. We don't go back to the old way of living. And we prepare for Christ's coming. We watch, we pray, we love the body, and we share our gifts in preparation for his coming. And when we do that, it's a beautiful thing, and when we do that correctly, Peter says, God, will be glorified. Brothers and sisters, we need to glorify him by having an attitude of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the willingness of your son to sacrifice himself, to, to, to be willing to die, to, to be willing to suffer. But Lord, that he was triumphant over 
that suffering and death. And that as he was risen from the dead, we too can and will be victorious over death and suffering. Father, give us the strength today to deny our own fleshly desires, to submit ourselves to your will, to not go back to our old ways and habits of living, and to look forward to your return. And as we look forward, may we be about the work of the kingdom through prayer, through loving each other, through using our gifts. Father, may we be found being on the welcome committee, preparing for the return. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.